As I stand before you this evening, I feel it entirely appropriate to again express a word of appreciation and thanks for all those men who so capably and ably fill this pulpit when the elders give their graciousness to allow me in other gospel meetings or otherwise. Thankful for Jeff and the lesson he brought last Sunday evening. And as from time to time, we're thankful for those men that take part in the service in that way. I think it's also wise to comment that it takes a great deal of effort to lead the singing and the other things also that we're so accustomed to enjoying as we give thought to the services before us. We have such a talented group of men to lead singing, to lead prayers, to deliver sermons, anything that's asked of them. The elders have often expressed to me, as many others have as well, how blessed we are at Pippin. And certainly I think it'd be well to thank our God in heaven on many occasions for that wonderful set of blessings He's given us. As you know, we have been studying in the book of 1 Samuel for a number of Sunday evenings, in fact, since almost the 1st of June. As we began that series, it was, of course, to allow us to study along with our Bible Bowl participants. But now that that Bible Bowl is passed... I did think it a bit wise to not leave the book hanging, to in essence complete it from chapters 25 on to chapter 31. And so tonight we come to the second additional lesson based on this book of 1 Samuel. As you can see to my left, tonight's title has a bit of an interesting notation with it. We shall discuss at least in part Saul and Samuel and a witch. I would invite us to give some thought to the way in which that develops. It is an actual part of the Word of God, and it's one that challenges us to give some thought to not only the history surrounding that, but also some lessons that can be of great benefit to us. As always, this opening slide is just an extraordinarily brief summary of some of the main thoughts and ideas through the first 26 chapters of this book. Along the way, we have been introduced to a number of individuals, such as Eli and Hannah, Elkanah and Samuel, and on down the list finally to Saul, as well as a whole list of others that might be mentioned. Most recently, we were introduced to this very odd person named Nabal. He was a fool, of course, but you and I noticed that he did something rather notably memorable, and ultimately it cost him his life. As that foolishness was on so, such ready display, we noticed his wife, though, was a person of wisdom. And she, in fact, ultimately spared his life for a brief time. It'll be that very way that, in fact, begins our lesson tonight. As our last lesson closed, and on these books of history, it's often a very wise move to keep in mind what one had just studied because it often segues right into the next chapter, or at least the next major movement in the book. It seems as if in some ways that happens again here. We noted that as chapter 26 closed, there was this statement that Nabal and the foolishness that he had wrought ultimately had brought his life to an end. Abigail's wisdom had been seen, and ultimately David was so impressed with her that he invited her to become one of his wives. She agreed to that arrangement, and we notice that the very last element brought Saul back into the picture one more time. Here it was again, Saul, as he chased David a bit on this particular region in Hekilah. And David had spared his life one more time. He had sneaked into the camp at night. He had, in fact, taken the bolster that Saul had at his side. We did notice as we studied that lesson that ultimately Saul came to recognize it would seem the greatness of that moment. 
It was, in fact, Saul who said in 1 Samuel 26, 21, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. It may well be that's one of the truest statements that Saul had made since back in chapter 10. But at least we can appreciate it would seem that he sensed that things were nearing a conclusion. He did, in fact, compliment David. He said, you, David, will prevail. And you, David, will in fact appreciate the ascendancy due to the blessing of God. And with that, the curtain closed on chapter 26. Tonight, as chapter 27 opens, we again notice a historical movement that I've outlined here. This movement will carry us through this chapter and the two that follow. Let's see if we can highlight the overview of that history, and then we'll see what lessons, at least briefly, we might take from it. As you'll notice near the top of that slide, Although Saul had pronounced a positive set of blessings toward David, and although Saul had confessed he had been the one in the wrong, and he had been the one guilty of error and sin, as chapter 27 opens, David is still not at ease with Saul. Although Saul had pronounced those good things, David was still fearful for his own life. He was still concerned for himself and his family. And so as this chapter opens, David, as you can well tell, he and those with him flee unto a Philistine city, the city, as you can well tell here, named Gath. The king of that place was named Achish. He's the same one we had seen back in chapter 21. On that occasion, you might recall, David had fled to this place and he had pretended himself to be insane on that occasion. And by that mechanism or that melancholy, he had in fact escaped the wrath of that place. But on this occasion, he flees to this place for refuge, for safety. He was still concerned about his own life and the onslaughts that might well come from Saul. Once he finds himself in this place of Gath, we notice that David with his number is relatively few, only 600 men with him. As you can well tell, there does come to be a bit of concern, however. Here was David, this one who had enjoyed such victory in Israel, this one who had in fact defeated Goliath, this one who had been in many places and had been lifted high by accolades in Israel. However, that could cause problems because Achish, the Philistine king of Gath, was there. Would these two individuals come into disagreement? Would they come into a bit of consideration in terms of disagreement? David makes a proposition. He, in fact, beseeches Achish, Give me a place where I may dwell separate from thee. Why should I dwell here in the royal city with thee? Not only does Achish hear that petition, he grants it. And so it is the fact that he gave back to David, as well as to Israel, that city known as Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. That is a place that formerly had been under Israelite control. But now, after the Philistines had captured it here, we notice Achish gives it back to David as a place where he might dwell. As you give thought to Ziklag, we will notice it will play another interesting role when we arrive at chapter 30 in our next lesson. At least for now, might we notice that as chapter 27 tells us, this situation concerning Ziklag does bring a very unfavorable report upon David. As chapter 27 closes, the following rather interesting thing happens. 
Achish is under the impression that David is dwelling in Ziklag, that he's doing things uprightly and honestly, and that he's going about taking care of the business that he ought to be doing. Little did he know that David, in fact, was making raids upon various cities, and he was destroying every person in those cities. Man, woman, boy, girl, baby, infant, you name it. David was wiping all of them out. He was doing this, in fact, in part to garner a bit of consideration for himself with a hopeful return to the land of Israel. Achish was completely unaware that David was making these conspiracies and these raids in the daytime. As you can well imagine, all of this was concealed from him, and with that, chapter 28 comes before us. In its brevity, chapter 27 had set the stage for this one. You'll notice that things become even more critical for Israel. Remember, the Philistines had been on various conquering raids in these chapters previous. Now we notice that the Philistine nation sets its sights on Israel one more time. One of the first things that comes to mind is that set of events back in chapter 17. There, Goliath was the one who was the champion of the Philistines, and he was the one who supposedly was going to defeat Israel. Although David had defeated Goliath then, we now notice that in chapter 28... The Philistines have armored themselves appropriately and they were again ready to engage Israel in battle. At this time, though, things looked very bleak because that king of Israel, the man named Saul, he was very terrified. He was greatly afraid. His heart trembled within him, the text says. As he looked at the prepared Philistine army in the distance, and as he gave thought to what troops he had available, Saul was a very desperate man. He did not foresee victory on his part, and so he was beside himself in wonderment, wishing to know what must I do, what can I do. It is for that reason that chapter number 28 proceeds along these lines. After Saul recognized the fearful circumstances in which he was, and the great Philistine army that was now gathering together and making ready to engage Israel in battle, we notice that Saul proceeded to ask for help. God did not answer him by dreams. God did not answer him by prophets. God did not answer him by Urim. There was no answer to be found anywhere, according to verses 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Samuel 28. And so Saul had this idea. He gave orders to his servants, you go and you find a woman with a familiar spirit. In essence, you find a witch. That's all the more interesting because only five verses earlier, Saul had destroyed all the witches and all the, those with familiar spirits in Israel. And so, needless to say, any person who would claim to have such power would have concealed it, would have hidden it, would not have wanted to make it known. However, Saul gave order, you find me a person with a familiar spirit. They came back with news that there is a woman at Endor that has a familiar spirit. And Saul disguised himself and off he went to Endor, he and some servants. He wanted to speak with this woman because he had a special request of her. Remember, he had disguised himself so that no one would know that the king was here present. The woman at first did not recognize who it was. She, in fact, asked, 
what may I do for you? And when he gave this request, I want you to bring up Samuel. He wanted to talk to Samuel. God had not answered by again Urim or dreams or prophets. He had often in days gone by, though, respected Samuel. Saul now requested this woman to bring Samuel up from the dead. She, of course, dutifully set about to attempt to do so. And we notice an interesting, very interesting set of events unfolded. In fact, the first thing the woman saw startled her so that she was almost beside herself in amazement because there, in fact, was Samuel. As he appeared, one of the first things to be noted is, of course, that the woman also recognized who Saul was. The disguise no longer was effective. When the appearance of Samuel was made known, she recognized who Saul was and she proceeded to plead for her own life. Not only that, we notice that Samuel had a very special set of words for Saul. In fact, the words might be summarized as follows. Samuel rebuked Saul for his own disobedience. He foretold to him the great destruction that Israel was going to suffer the very next day because the Philistines were going to be victorious. And he had one final word for Saul. Tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons are going to be where I am. You're going to die, and you're going to be in the Hadean realm. No wonder that set of news was so distressing to Saul. Israel was going to be beaten. He was going to be killed. His sons were going to be slain as well. And now we notice perhaps what the key elements are going to be of the very last sermon out of the book of 1 Samuel. All of that will come next time, however. It is for tonight, though, that we still need to see this. It may be that you and I aren't the least bit surprised that after hearing that kind of news, Saul, it says, lay on the ground. He didn't have any strength to even get up. It so emotionally drained him and so emotionally caused him to be distraught that he didn't even eat anything. Finally, in his weakened state, that woman, the witch, insisted, eat something before you go back to the palace because on the journey you may be faint. He refused. We do notice, though, that the servants that were with him, they too encouraged him to eat, and finally he did, in fact, agree to do so. But that does bring us to chapter 29. As we see opening chapter number 29, we come to appreciate the following also rather intriguing set of events. In this chapter, it also is relatively brief, and it might be highlighted in the following ways. The time for the battle is almost upon us. The Philistines have arrayed themselves, the Israelites have arrayed themselves, and they again are facing each other across a bit of a valley. This time Israel is at Gilboa, and it will play a rather notable role in chapter 31, the last chapter of the book. At least for now, here are the Israelites at Gilboa, and the Philistines a very, very short distance away. As you notice in the opening verse of chapter 29, they themselves are at Aphek. We notice one thing, though, that occupies the majority of this chapter. As the Philistines prepared for battle, the king Achish desired David to go along and to, in fact, fight with the Philistines against the Israelites. As David prepared to do that, one final twist of events develops. The other Philistine lords 
those that were also leaders of the Philistines, they did not want David to go. They wanted him to stay behind for they didn't feel he was trustworthy. After all, he had been an Israelite leader. He had been one that defeated Goliath. He had been one so highly respected. And who knows but what when the battle actually comes, he will fight for Israel against us. Due to that lack of trustworthiness, they did not want David to go with them to fight Israel. And thus, Achish was finally prevailed upon to insist that David stay behind. We notice in the middle verses of that chapter that he did give David orders, you are not to go with us. David was rather displeased, at least as the, his own words indicate. We'll have to see in chapter 30 what that displeasure ultimately resulted in. All of that will come in the lesson next time. It is with that historical overview that we're prepared to look at a few of the lessons seen in chapters 27, 28, and 29. Maybe those lessons can start in the following way. Saul is such an interesting person for study. Many things about Saul has been the basis for many a sermon throughout the centuries. You and I have noted many things in this set, in this set of chapters about that same man. Some of them have been noteworthy. The vast majority have been rather sad. Tonight's is perhaps one of the saddest of all. Did you notice one of the descriptions that we made earlier about this gentleman named Saul? As the Philistines were preparing themselves in battle array, and as they were making ready to in fact engage the Israel in battle one last time, we noticed that Saul had petitioned for some assistance. Saul needed help. He needed some answers. And he needed them pretty quickly because the Philistine army was in the distance. And so he had sought dreamers and he had asked prophets and he had in fact sought for help in other ways such as the Urim that the high priest had available. And God had not answered at all. It is interesting that the text in fact states it that way. God had not answered at all. To state that slightly differently, the Lord had departed from Saul. We had seen that back in chapter 16, hadn't we? And now perhaps it's finally time to appreciate one last set of observations about the Lord departing from Saul. Isn't it amazing that as the Lord had departed from him, it does remind us of some other individuals within the pages of God's sacred text for whom that sad thing had happened. What about Samson in Judges 16? There, this one who had been blessed with such supernatural strength he had been able to go about and do whatever he wished due to the greatness of physical mastery that God had given him. However, when he told Delilah where his great strength lay and she cut his hair while he was asleep, he rose up and it says the Lord had departed from him and he knew it not. Isn't it sad to come in and to think about the Lord had departed from him and he wasn't even aware of it? I suppose that does challenge us today to be very sure that the Lord has not departed from us. It reminds us of some of the questions the children of Israel had asked. In Exodus 17, verses 8 and 9, what was it that they had the audacity to ask on that occasion? Is the Lord among us or not? Now that's a noble question, but one, would one not think that those for whom the Red Sea had parted only three chapters earlier 
and the very ones who in fact had seen the great tragedy of the death of the firstborn not many days before, and yet they had been spared. Would they not have known the Lord was among them, and yet they had the nerve to ask, is the Lord among us or not? What was the reason for their doubt? What was the reason for their uncertainty? That was the situation, remember, when they were a bit hungry and they were a bit thirsty. And God ultimately gave Moses the instruction to cast a certain tree into the waters at Marah because they were bitter and they were unsatisfied with the bitter water at Marah. Isn't it amazing, this people that had seen so much and yet were so distraught because they were thirsty. How fickle they were. Saul, you see, here was a desperate man. And I use that word with care, a desperate man. What was he to do? The Philistines were coming. The army was almost ready to attack. And he didn't have the answer. But it was because that the Lord had not provided it to him. He had not repented. He hadn't made things well and right. Today, isn't it true that there's every reason to be desperate when the Lord has departed from us? There's every reason to be unpleasant and every reason to be distraught, every reason to appreciate despair. After all, isn't it true that in the New Testament we find some very soothing and comforting words like these? Philippians 4, 6 reminds us about the easiness with which we can approach our Heavenly Father and understand that in Him and in Him alone we find that marvelous matter of peacefulness and the easiness that comes with knowing that He is our God and we are His children. Be anxious for nothing, Paul wrote, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. There are some great decisions that come our way in life. When those come, are you and I unlike Saul? Are we soothed and comforted because God is our Father, or are we desperate? Have we reached a point of uncertainty? It does cause one to think a bit, doesn't it? What about that second text in 1 Peter 5, 7? Where on that occasion, wasn't it the inspired apostle who said, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. The cares of this life can be so overwhelming. I've often wondered if Paul, or rather if Peter, didn't have in mind at least a part of what David asserted in Psalm 55, verse 22. Near the close of that psalm, wasn't it the majestic David who in an element of confidence and in great assurance could make a statement as beautiful and as soothing as this one. He says, interestingly and also very powerfully, Cast all your care upon the Lord, for He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Never suffer the righteous to be moved. That reminds us of Psalm 37, 25, doesn't it? I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God is mindful of those that are His children. You and I ought never to forget and to express in thanksgiving to God our appreciation of the kindness and the way that He has so often been there to encourage and to protect us and to assist us in those ways over the dangers of this life. We are promised, are we not? In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, that as Jesus there made that statement, the Lord will provide 
those things such as shelter and raiment and food. Your heavenly Father knoweth you have need of these things, the Lord said. And if God knows those things, isn't it still true? He knows far more how to bless than we even are capable of asking. To quote a part of Matthew 6, verses, verses 8 and 9. To think about the Lord departing from Saul. I suppose that prompts us to the major and lengthier chapter, chapter 28. We noticed in the title earlier that there was mention made of Samuel and Saul and a witch. Sometimes we think that witches are for fairy tales and the stories our children read. But here the Bible makes note of this woman at Endor. I would invite you to think with me for a few moments about this woman, the place that she plays in this chapter, and some lessons that might be of some benefit to you and me even to this day. The first thing to know is that there were individuals in that Old Testament era who made the open proclamation to be witches, Jeremiah 27, 9, in fact, identically says when God through the prophet told the children of Israel that there will be these individuals, such as witches, soothsayers, sorcerers, and others, don't you give heed to the false words that they say. That was God speaking through Jeremiah. You'll notice that that particular motive of life had often been the subject of condemnation from God. We had noted in our study on Sunday mornings even, in our Bible study hour when we in fact first noticed Exodus twenty-two eighteen that there God directly said, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. They were to put them to death. That was only the first of a number of other passages though that spoke about that very same reality. You'll notice in Leviticus twenty twenty-seven, it there was said in terms of these witches, they are to be stoned to death. Even the means whereby they're to be put to death was identified. Finally, in Deuteronomy 18, we notice in verses 8 and 9 of that chapter, the interesting observation that here there was a number of elements listed. Necromancers, sorcerers, witches, and others, all of them were to be put to death. We notice in terms of this witchcraft, although the Word of God had been so plain, the leaders in Israel permitted them to leave. We did notice earlier that Saul eventually did strive to put them out of the land, but of course that woman at Endor was allowed to remain. Whether by hiding or otherwise, she nonetheless continued to exist. It's time to notice a few additional comments about these individuals. First of all, there is a rather strong hint an almost strong impression, in fact, in Isaiah 8, verse, verse number 19 and 20, about the character of these that occupied this role. Speaking, God there through Isaiah said, Isaiah, as well as the children of Israel, were in fact to give no heed to those that peep and mutter. And that's the very word that God used. Those that were guilty of peeping and muttering. That seems to suggest that these who claimed to be able to do this were not genuine at all. That they were in fact hoaxes. That in fact they were ungenuine and unreal. They deceived those that came to them. Those again that mutter and peep. It is for all those reasons we might give serious consideration to this. 
What then took place on this occasion? This witch at Endor. It is interesting that as Saul came to this woman, at first he didn't tell her what he wanted, but only after she agreed to attempt did he say, I want you to bring up Samuel. She, of course, gave the impression to attempt to do this. And many have asked through the centuries, did she actually make Samuel appear? Was this a power inherent in her whereby she in fact brought back this spirit from the Hadean realm and thus caused Samuel to appear and allowed him to carry on a conversation with Saul? Was that power inherent in this woman? I think far from it. In fact, it might be noted, as we stated earlier, she was very surprised when Samuel appeared. That seems by itself to speak an interesting set of volumes. If she had been accustomed to actually doing things like this, why would she have been so shocked and so surprised and so distraught herself when he did appear? It seems clear that Samuel did appear, but it was not due to her power. It was not due to the thing that she had herself done. Samuel's appearing was due to the fact God of heaven permitted this. And he made this happen with the particular lesson inherent to be these. First, Saul needed one final time to be reprimanded. And when Samuel appeared, he rebuked him, he chastised him, and he urged him to forget, or rather not forget, about the disobedience in terms of the Amalekites, his offering of the unjust sacrifices, and the character of the kind of person he had become. When Samuel mentioned all that to Saul... Of course, Saul listened with intensity. But then that final lesson was so very telling. He said the Philistines will be victorious tomorrow. The battle is going to take place and they will in fact enjoy marvelous victory over Israel. And you, Saul, and your sons will be with me tomorrow. He was going to die the next day. One of the few occasions in all of Scripture when someone was told when he was going to die... Tomorrow, Saul knew that he had roughly 24 hours, or at least somewhat thereabout, and he would meet his death. All of that makes one wonder, how did he spend the last day of his life? Was it spent in wisdom? Was it spent in that which would be well-pleasing unto God? We'll have to wait until the last lesson next week to find that answer. But the last two chapters of this book will detail how he devoted and spent that last day. And of course, his death will be recorded as well. For now, might we give some thought to these. You and I, though we live so many centuries this side of 1 Samuel 28, there are still those that make claims to sorcery. And there are still those that interest themselves in witchcraft. And there are still those that make a notable impression of doing these things. In fact, it seems with the easiness with which our society has become that folks have turned their attention to any number of things recreationally and sometimes even more than recreationally. And this seems to be one of them. There is a strong countercurrent of witchcraft taking place in our society. If you have any doubt about that, just take a few moments, if you would, on Google and see how many sites are devoted to witchcraft. They detail these very impressive ceremonies that are supposed to take place and large numbers gather and involve themselves in this. They wear certain kinds of clothing. 
They have certain signs upon their bodies. They use various books descriptive of these detailed issues that are supposedly allow them to do any number of things, including even communicating with the dead. All of that's taking place. Perhaps you and I see it not so much in this area, but who knows but what the time may come. It already is in the school systems. Look sometimes at what takes place in terms of a counterculture of a relatively few in high school and in college. It's there. Witchcraft. No wonder we should be a bit interested to know what does God have to say about this. Perhaps the most notable text is the one found in Galatians, the fifth chapter. We notice there that there is a rather extensive listing, including the works of the flesh. And these things are set forth in no uncertain terms as being condemned. Because the inspired apostles say that they that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If we look with care at the elements in that list, many things are certainly very easy to appreciate. Things like adultery and fornication and idolatry. But the sixth element in that list is witchcraft. Witchcraft. You'll notice, again, that's found in Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20. And we notice then that those that participate in and give credence to witchcraft are doing that which is unpleasing to the eyes of God and that, in fact, condemned by Him. It might be for that reason we find the very same Greek word used one other time in the very last book in the Bible, Revelation 18, verse 23. Notice it's also condemned in that location, but there it's used in a figurative way, descriptive of the harlot that's described in her destruction. But one of the things of which she'd been guilty was that very issue of witchcraft. It is perhaps for all those reasons that we reach the final lesson tonight. The one I've simply entitled, Distrust. We've seen distrust highlighted twice in this lesson. There was first of all that distrust that David had toward Saul, but there was also that distrust that the Philistines had toward David. It might be that distrust prompts us to a very few brief and final remarks tonight. I've tried to state them as like this. It should be a rather sad reflection upon any Christian when that person is known for distrust. When someone doesn't believe what you say, because they don't trust you, and yet you claim to be a Christian. This particular attribute in the life we've seen certainly should cause a great deal of concern for you and me. As a Christian, when someone thus says, I don't really trust you, I really can't believe what you say. You say one thing, but yet you do something else. If you and I are perceived in that fashion, that doesn't bode well for our Christianity, does it? In fact, it bodes very sorrowfully that our example is so poor, our example is so inadequate, that that basic degree of trust simply isn't there. Jesus, on more than one occasion, He said, Let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, for whatsoever is more than this becometh of sin. Our Lord made that statement, and James quoted it in part. All of that reminds us our language, of course, ought to be genuine, but not just our language the lifestyle that we choose to uphold, and the lifestyle that we choose to follow. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
they aren't seeing good works if they don't trust that what I say is true and genuine. And the same, of course, is true of any person claiming to be a Christian. No wonder that element of distrust that we've seen here shines so brightly because Saul apparently was untrustworthy. David couldn't trust what he said, despite the fact he had just said in chapter 26, David, you shall prevail. May you and I be wiser, stronger, more devoted and godly than the example that Saul had set on this occasion. It is in those words that we notice that there is a very notable encouragement to honesty in all that you and I would uphold and do. In 2 Corinthians 8.21, even Paul was given to that very degree because he said, providing things honest in the sight of all men. It is interesting that that word honest there really means honorable. Do you and I provide things honorable in the sight of all men? If not, what's that say about us in that verse? What does it say about our givenness and failure in light of the Lord's demand in terms of our honor? A whole host of other verses are listed in that slide or that particular statement just above that one. Everything from Colossians 1.17 to the statement made in 1 Peter 1.16, finally to that statement in James 1 verse 27. It might be that one that we'll use to close our time tonight. In James 1 verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Are you and I unspotted from the world? If so, may we ever be dutiful to ensure we continue to live that way. But if we are spotted, if we are not unspotted, it might be this lesson tonight has challenged us sufficiently to close our lesson with these words. We've noticed in chapters 27 and 29 these considerations relative to David and the Philistines. And in between them sandwiched in chapter 28 was that intriguing record of the witch. We noticed that the words she had to, or the words that Samuel had to share with Saul were very telling indeed. One day to live is all you got. We can't wait, I'm sure, until the next lesson to see how he spent that day and what he did. But until that time, what about your life and mine tonight? It might be that there's one or more individuals in this audience that's in need of making a public response to the gospel call of invitation. And it is the gospel call of invitation. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 14 in fact describes it in that very way. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, perhaps as one who has been a faithful member of the body of Christ, but tonight is not, why not come back to your first love? If maybe you've never become a faithful member of the body of Christ initially, why not tonight? We could assist you by taking your confession and assisting you in baptism. Jesus said that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16, 16. If we could be of help to any individual tonight, we would urge you to come at once to the invitation of the Master and to do so while together we stand and while we sing.